Um, there's this beautiful passage um, from one of the Buddhist texts where the Buddha says, Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, but it becomes colored by the attachments that visit it. This people do not understand. When it's free of the attachments that visit us, this mind and heart is luminous and brightly shining, and this is the way. Um, and it was, it was apparent. Um, there was, <clears throat> you could call it the, the quality of enlightenment. And people think of enlightenment as something at the end of, you know, many lifetimes or up in some mountains in India in the Himalayas or something. But there is enlightenment as liberation and freedom that is possible for us here and now. Uh, and we all know it. We all have our experiences. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened people. There are only enlightened moments. And it was just beautiful to watch this process. Now, of course, they all went back home, so that's another story, a chapter that will... Um, but they carried something with them that was quite special. And so I want to talk about the qualities, again, that are of this intrinsic or natural or luminous heart. When the fears and attachments, when the greed and hatred and all of that painful conditioning starts to drop away, what we discover within ourselves is an inner well-being, and nobility and luminosity, as the Buddha speaks of, a true nature. And more than anything, the possibility of being free, wherever we are. And we live in a culture that could be defined in some ways by the absence of the sacred, in lots of aspects. And without the perspective of this sacred nature of mind or consciousness, it's like we're in a boat without a rudder. Because everything comes from consciousness. All the problems of the human world and all the solutions all come out of consciousness and the mind. So what is this nature of this mind? It's said in the time of the Buddha that when at one point there was a monk who the Buddha heard was quite sick and ill. And so the Buddha said to his chief disciple, go to this monk and make sure that he is well tended and cared for, see if he needs anything. And then after that, recite to him the qualities of enlightenment that you may gladden and liberate his heart. So this close disciple of the Buddha went and found the sick monk and made sure that he was tended to and cared for in all the ways necessary. So it's not just words, but it's really our actions that express our liberation. And then recited the what are called the seven factors of enlightenment, the seven qualities that we know in our own heart as the luminous, shining nature. He said, Oh, you who listen, remember the factor of enlightenment of mindfulness, of presence in every moment. Oh, you who listen, remember the factor of awakening, of enlightenment, of seeing the truth, of clarity. Oh, you who are awakening, remember the factor of aliveness and energy. And remember as well the factor of awakening, of joy in your heart. And remember as well the factor of awakening, of calm and ease in your heart. And remember, O nobly born as well, the factor of awakening and enlightenment, of stillness and concentration. And remember, O nobly born, the factor of perfect peace and equanimity. Establish yourself, remember, and reawaken these qualities and live in an enlightened way. So I'd like to talk about these a bit further tonight, primarily as a reminder of what's possible. Because even if you weren't on the 10-day retreat, and we have our hour or two hours here, our two-hour retreat, you know, it's like uh, fast food meditation or something, (laughs) right? Drive through. (laughs) Nevertheless, 
nevertheless, actually, it's only a moment away to remember. It's not that we have to cultivate these things. Yes, we do cultivate them and develop them. But in another way, what we practice to do is to remember what is really true, the deep underlying well-being that is there in our hearts, our true nature. So the first of these qualities which balances the others. There's two groups of active qualities and stabilizing ones. Um, but the first quality is kind of in the middle and it, it is the central quality of expression of awakening in this particular set of teachings is the quality of sati or mindfulness, a presence, respect, and attention. Sometimes I translate it as a sacred presence. It is the quality in us that knows what is true just now without reaction or judgment or expectation or contraction or grasping. An openness to this present moment. And this is part of our Buddha nature. To rest in awareness, this is what is so. Resting in this spacious attention is called the gateway to the timeless or the eternal or the deathless. Because in any moment that we allow the space of awareness to hold or embrace our experience, then the 10,000 joys and sorrows of life, the vast suffering and the unspeakable beauty that are woven together in this world are seen as they are. As one person on the retreat said, um, I come from a fix-it family, and I had a big fix-it identity myself. My grandfather did, my father did, my son does, you know. And so it's kind of hard for me to stop trying to fix it and just see it first for how it is. And yet, no matter what it is, whatever we need to tend to or care for with compassion, the first step is to see the world honestly and truthfully as it is with a free heart. Remember I tell the story of John Kabat-Zinn some weeks ago uh, doing his mindfulness-based stress reduction, the first clinic in the basement of the medical school, and asking people, the doctors in the hospitals, to send him the, the most difficult patients, the ones that they couldn't heal in any other way or you know, had given up on, really. And then, as he said to me kind of privately, it's because we, we have the strongest medicine of all in our clinic. We have the truth. Whatever it is that's so for you, instead of all the things that you're trying to do about it, the first step is just to be a witness to what is so and bring your heart into a wise, present, awake relationship with this living moment, with its joys and sorrows. To be aware in this way brings balance and ease. It's stepping out of the battle, stepping out of the struggle. And it's spacious. Awareness acknowledges what's here and yet has a spacious, easy quality to it. There was a woman who came on the retreat and we had a little group interview in the beginning. Sometimes we do small groups and then individual time with teachers. And she didn't want to say anything. And I said, what makes it difficult for you to speak? And she said, I'm really nervous. I said, that's okay. Just be mindful of nervous. You can even name it. Nervous, nervous, just feel it. She got more nervous, right? Okay, paying attention to it. After a little dialogue, it turned out, she said, I, I, I can't speak up. I can't speak up in groups. I said, oh, that's an interesting condition, conditioning. What makes that? sat for a moment. She said, you know, whenever I said anything, they judged me. We won't say who they are. I'll let you guess that, right? But them, the ones who do that, always. So I just, you know, I, I, I don't want to say anything because I'm going to get judged. I'm going to get pounced on or worse, beaten. So I said, so how's it feel to say that much? And she was shaking, trembling. I said, okay, close your eyes, just note it with me, be mindful, trembling, trembling. She said, oh, I feel like I'm going to die. And okay, dying, dying, just see what happens. It's all right. Make space for it, see what happens, you know. 
oh, dissolving, dissolving. And as you make space, what's difficult is actually primarily difficult because of our resistance to it. So the quality of mindfulness brings this great sense of space and balance, dying, dying, dissolving, dissolving. She got a little bit quieter. She said, but it's still really scary. I said, well, can you find some place of refuge that's, you know, still in your body, some place where you can bring your attention, your breath, your hands, your feet? No, 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 I can't do it. Well, then I said, can you go back in your memory and think of a place where you felt safe? No, she shook her head. It's pretty difficult. I said, well, go way back, you know. Think of a moment you felt safe. She lifted up her hands. She said, crayons. I said, oh, what's tell me? She said, yeah, I'm like three years old, four years old. I have this box of crayons there by myself. I feel happy, safe. I said, that's okay. That's a good image. Keep that. I said, maybe you can draw something. She said, oh, no, 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 no. I can't draw anything. You know, as soon as I draw something, they'll judge it. They'll take it away. But I can hold the crayons. Everybody in the room was about to weep at that moment. And I said, well, suppose you let yourself just be with that and be with the fear of doing anything because of what's going to happen and hold the crayons. And imagine that you gave space for this, all these feelings, the fear and the feel like you're going to get, you know, beat as she was at times and so forth. And imagine that you could allow that energy that got dampened down to have space to open. What would happen? She got this little smile on her face, held the crayons. She said, she said, I would dance. I would be a fairy princess. You know, I always wanted to be a fairy princess. Okay. So we talked for a while. Later that day, I went out and I got her a box of crayons, gave it to her. I said, okay, you can draw a picture. And she said she went, took the crayons, and drew some things, and then carried her crayons out in the woods on a sunny day, you know, and danced. She said, and that's the first time I've let myself dance. She was 64 years old. So there is a tremendous graciousness and respect and healing and spaciousness about mindfulness that sees the mystery of our humanity with our suffering and our conditioning and the ways that other people have made us suffer and we have done the same to them. And it can bow to it all and say, yes, this too, this too, and make space for it. It becomes the luminous ground of being, the space of awareness, so that joy and sorrow fear and love, all of these things that are our humanity become workable instead of reacted to. We rest in the heart of a Buddha, in the space of awareness itself. We begin to trust it. And then even death becomes something that is met in a completely different way. Another story for you. One of my respected, dear respected friends and colleagues is a Vipassana teacher, a woman named Ruth Dennison, uh, who's in her 80s now, one of the early teachers of Buddhist meditation in America. And, oh, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, she was taking care of her husband, Henry, uh, who's also in his 80s, a bit older than her, who had uh, Alzheimer's. And he was staying at the house And she was teaching retreats at her retreat center and then driving three hours and going home and taking care of Henry, who couldn't take so well care of herself, and driving back. She has just a fountain of energy, even at 80. Um, And then one day he accidentally um, left the stove on and part of the house burned and fire came and got, you know, put out. Um, And she had been tending to all this, and then she was invited up. She had a retreat she was to teach in Oregon, and she flew up to Portland to this meditation center and first gave a public lecture that night. And she'd been up, you know, tending Henry in the fire and the retreats back and forth for a really long time, hadn't slept. And she came in the room, there were all these people, and she began to teach. And she started to talk immediately about how to deal with difficulty and my husband with Alzheimer's, 
you know, in the retreat center, but then the fire, he lit the house on fire and all these things that she was dealing with and how hard it was to stay centered and aware with all this. And then she went on to teach a few other things about being with difficulties. And they said, and now let me tell you about my husband, Henry, who has Alzheimer's and who can't remember things and about the fire that happened and the retreats and started the whole story all over again. And there was this kind of look on people's faces, you know, and like, okay, um, what's happening here? And she saw it and she stopped in the middle and she realized that something was strange and she said, you know... um, I don't know what's happening. Did I tell you this story? Didn't I can't even remember what's happened in this last, you know, half an hour with you. She said, so she just closed her eyes for a minute and she said, you have the chance to see a really unusual thing. You have the chance to see a senior Dharma teacher fail. And then she just looked around at everybody. People were getting ready to leave the room. And then their eyes opened. Oh, wow. Don't leave yet. You know, you have a chance to see something really unusual. It actually was just situational. She hadn't slept in about a week. You know, I don't do that well after I sleep. Don't sleep for a week either. But the quality of her mindfulness was such that even when she lost it, which we all do, it came back and she said, this is the way things are as if to bow to that too. There was such a freedom even in that. Not just for difficulty, but freedom for fullness, for joy, for the moon, if you saw it, driving in that kind of foggy, hazy crescent of a moon that's magical. Um, And the eyes of the people that you love and live with... um, Mindfulness is that capacity of being where we are. And then it is the balance and the, the, the support for three arousing qualities of your enlightenment and three stabilizing qualities. The arousing qualities are energy or aliveness, dhamma-vichaya, which means truthfulness or investigation, and joy. And first, energy. There is an invitation in spiritual life to live fully, to bring our whole self in a complete and full way to the experience of being alive. As Don Juan said to Carlos Castaneda, only as a spiritual warrior can one withstand the path of knowledge. A warrior, a spiritual warrior, sees everything as a challenge, while an ordinary person sees them only as a blessing or a curse. For a spiritual warrior, there are only challenges, and challenges cannot possibly be good or bad. Challenges are simply challenges. So we have this life with its difficulties and its beauty and with the suffering around us that we're called upon to tend. We also have a capacity to bring our aliveness to this. And the most important quality of right effort, it might be called in this, is simply the effort to be present. Not in a struggle, but rather more like the, the bicycle, to be present and alive and in this moment, bring ourselves to it fully. Now, of course, you know, this is one of the things that people undertake uh, spiritual practice for, the discipline, kind of just as a reminder over and again and again to bring ourselves alive. Annie Lamott writes, I have this tape of a Tibetan nun singing a mantra of compassion over and over, eight words, each word over and over, each line feels cared about and unique and experienced fully as she sings it. You never once have the sense that she's glancing down at her watch thinking, Jesus Christ, it's only been 15 minutes. How much more do I... (laughs) 45 minutes later, she's still singing every line distinctly, word by word, until the last word is sung. Mostly things are not that simple and pure with attention to each syllable as life sings itself through us. But this kind of attention is the prize. And this is really the gift 
of bringing our full bodied energy, aliveness. Sometimes we think of energy as a battery, you know, it's going to run down, I'll give too much or I'll love too much, and okay, then I'll use up my love, you know, tank and there won't be any more left, right? (laughs) But it doesn't work that way, in fact. The more we love or the more we give ourselves or the more alive we are, the more the channel of our being opens and greater energy and aliveness and love can move through us. So it's really the openness of this in whatever way. So I saw in the paper that there was someone who had opened what is called the 1-800-MOTIVATION hotline. I think you call it for 99 cents. You dial it up. Thank you for calling the 1-800-MOTIVATION hotline. You have three choices. Press 1 if you need a personalized wake-up call. Press 2 if you've forgotten why you even bother. Press number three if you need a good swift kick in the pants. (laughs) Really talks about the quality of impeccability of living fully. It doesn't matter whether you fail or succeed. I mean, it does matter and we do care. But in the end, that's not given to us to decide. What's given to us is to give our heart to life in a full way. And if we do, that is actually the success. That's the the gift of it. There was this person who came on the retreat who had chronic pain, this man. He had this degenerative disease and just lived with a tremendous amount of pain. And then he said his dad, he just helped his dad move into assisted living for um, because he had senile dementia and couldn't take care of himself and you know, just all these family problems in his, bo- his own body, this man's body was in tremendous pain. And he said, I was just sitting with myself and I would say to myself, courage, courage, this was my little mantra, just courage to open to all that came. And he came in to me to talk, came in to see me one of the days, you know, halfway through the retreat or a little more. I said, how is it going? He said, I had meditation this morning I'd felt all this grief and all this struggle and somehow I just made space for it I held it all with compassion and he said and you know what there came this moment of peace and then I felt pleasure I even had bliss this purple color came and my body he said you know how long it's been since I felt pleasure and bliss in my body he said it didn't last that long but it was so good to just have some moments of pleasure and to let go and put down all the struggle of my life. And he looked at me and he said, courage, courage, just that. So there's this quality of giving ourselves, and we actually have a longing to open in us, no matter what the shells and what the trauma, there's this longing to be full and alive and open. I remember when I was in the Cambodian refugee camps working, this huge, you know, 100,000 people-sized camp surrounded by a fence and a hot, dry, barren um, piece of land, little tiny bamboo huts one after another and in the hot season in Thailand on the border of Cambodia. And most people there had been through terrible trauma and the loss of half their family members, the burning of their Villages, schools, temples, terrible things. And you could see it. There was this kind of shock and so forth. They'd been there for some months when I first arrived at the camp. And each hut, which was about as wide as you could touch with your hands, a little bit less and then a little bit longer than that, had a kind of piece of cloth that hung over the doorway. Um, And then there was a little space before the next one, probably like a square yard, out beside where the path was in the door. And in front of most of the huts, there was a little garden. And water wasn't easy to come by. You had to take your buckets, walk a mile to the end of camp, and stand for an hour to walk down to the bottom of this huge pit well that had been dug by a bulldozer, standing in the blazing sun to get one bucket of water and bring it back. And there was this whole line of people getting their buckets of water and watering a little squash plant watering a little bean plant and making their gardens and growing their life again. 
And I looked at this and just shook my head in a kind of wonder that we as human beings, no matter what happens, there is a seed in us that longs to open, that longs to start again. So this is the next factor of enlightenment, this, this opening, this fullness. And with it, there is matched the quality of seeing what's true. When the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any solution, nor struggling with what is so, then it is possible to see what is true. And it is the truth that liberates and not your efforts to be free. It is the deepest seeing of life itself that frees the heart. This investigation of seeing with the wisdom, the eyes of a Buddha, doesn't mean that you you know, collect a lot of information or know something. It's more the unknowing, the mystery of life that's always here. As Socrates said, to be certain is to be, excuse me, to be uncertain is to be uncomfortable, but to be certain is to be ridiculous. <laughs> I know that I know nothing, said Socrates. Or as Calvin and Hobbes, I guess it was Calvin, said, the surest sign of intelligent life in the universe is that it hasn't tried to contact us. <laughs> the quality of investigation is the willingness to see how is this world? It is changing. Anybody not have that in your world? It is mostly out of our control. You have a very limited control. Try to say to your mind, don't think when you sit here. You know, don't do something. Does it listen to you? Okay, so your mind's not in your control. How about your feelings? I'm only going to have certain kinds of feelings. How about your body? Okay, don't grow old. Right? Does it listen? So life has its own laws. And with the eye of wisdom, we see the way life is. This is the truth. And either we cling, and the more greed, and the more the small sense of self, the body of fear gets armored, and we blame others, and the whole, you know, us and them, and who's right and who's wrong, and all of that, the more we suffer trying to cling on. Or we can see that happiness comes not from grasping, but from graciousness, from opening, from letting go. The simplest description of this, one Buddhist friend of mine said, the teachings of the Buddha are primarily about rope burn, right? (laughs) The world is changing. However, it, it is, and it's not in our control. And we can either hold on, or we can be gracious and wise with the change. And with this same wisdom, we can begin to ask, who am I? Who is it that was born into this body with its wiggly things at one end, you know, and at the other end some other wiggly things and bits of fur and all that stuff that we talk about, right? And, and eyes, I mean, eyes are the weirdest thing. They are, you know, they're really bizarre. Or tongues, come on, you know. I mean, we could go on from here. How did you get in here, into this incarnation? And then you say, well, who am I really? And so you look, what is this mind? And the, All the conditions of thoughts that create our life, you can see them. And the thoughts that are based on grasping and clinging and fear, they make suffering. And the ones that are spacious and wise, they bring happiness. But to whom do they happen? Suppose we look even more deeply. As one great Tibetan Lama says, come close and listen now. When you look carefully for it, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. Try and find your mind, your consciousness. Where is it? And not finding anything is an incredible find. Friends, to start with, mind doesn't emerge from anything. It is primordially empty and spacious There's nothing to hold to. It isn't anywhere. It has no shape or color. And in the end, it has nowhere to go. Things arise and pass within it, leaving no trace. It neither appears nor disappears, grows or gets stuck. It is neither empty or full. 
and not being fixed at something, it is beyond presence and absence. Its nature is clear, transparent, like a flawless piece of crystal, empty, containing all things radiant. Mind itself, when we understand, is surely the Buddha. So one of my teachers said he had gone, traveled through all the forests of Thailand looking for a great master, and one day sat at the foot of this old forest monk who looked at him and said, you know, you get caught in trying to make this and do that and all the things in your mind, and you forget who it is that is the witness to this. All these states come and go, they're not what's important. Rest in the witness. Rest in the pure knowing that receives joy and sorrow. Trust it. It is your own true nature and you will be happy. So I leave this for you. You can investigate yourself. The point isn't to have someone else's experience, but to have your own. Energy, investigation, and joy, the third of these qualities. Remember this little cartoon from Life in Hell, you know, that little guy with the... I don't know what kind of creature he is, Matt Groening's creature. But he's sitting there in a meditation posture with his hands and a little mudra, smiling and saying, I am one in the now. The only reality is the present. I'm totally alive in this moment. This moment is all I need. The moment is eternal and unending. Nothing is but what is now. And then off in the side you hear this little ding, He says, dang, that microwave popcorn takes a long time. (laughs) At first, for people, spiritual life gets mixed up with some kind of self-improvement campaigns, kind of grim duty. As I said last week or the week before, there's a certain kind of person for whom the divine gets mixed up with exercise and vitamins. You know? (laughs) But the description of the Buddha and of your own true nature is the happy one, the joyful one, the one who saw sorrow in the world and discovered as well the inherent freedom and joy that is possible just in being alive. There's a beautiful book by Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, probably his 50 or 60th book, whatever, called Cultivating the Mind of Love, one series of lectures, the practice of looking deeply into love in Mahayana Buddhist tradition. So he's a great teacher, and you expect to read these beautiful essays on the nature of loving kindness and so forth. And he begins in that way, talking about the Buddhist sutras and the Buddhist teachings of love in the first chapter. And then in chapter two, which I heard about from some friends who were in his community in France when he gave these lectures... He begins chapter two with this paragraph. She was 20 years old when I met her. We were at the temple of complete awakening in the highlands of Vietnam, and I had never seen anyone who looked like her before. As I was walking up, I saw her standing there as a nun looking out on the hills, and there was a fresh breeze blowing across my face, and I'd seen many nuns and women, but never had a feeling like this before. So he's going on lecturing, Buddhist lecture, about the teachings of the Buddha, and all of a sudden, this comes out of his mouth, and all these people are sort of sleeping, love, love, right? You know, not paying attention. Oh, she was 20 years old when I met her. (sighs) So beautiful. Saw her walking down the temple steps and fell in love. Rumi says... Do not sit long with sadness, my friend. When you enter a garden, do you look at thorns or flowers? Spend more time with roses and jasmine. So the spiritual path isn't, isn't to kind of in, enclose ourselves and struggle with the world. There is a great task of compassion, and we talk about it in other evenings, the way of the bodhisattva and the work of compassion in all the realms of the world. But it's not a grim duty. It's really the expression of our joy. And I have to say, years you know, ago when I lived in Asia and 
kept going back and forth over over many t- many years. I would go periodically and stop in Calcutta and visit and sometimes volunteer for a little bit of time at Mother Teresa's places in Calcutta, the orphanage and the home for dying destitutes near Malhridaya at the Kali Temple, Kali Ghat in Calcutta. And the first time I went there, I thought, okay, this is going to be heavy, right? And this is going to be intense. People who are picked up off the street in Calcutta and who are dying, you know, at the Kali Temple. But I went in, and the first thing was how surprising was how absolutely clean it was. It was really clean and simple and spacious and airy, and there were cots and windows and kind of bright colors. And the next thing that was striking was how happy and sweet were all the nuns that worked there and joyful. And there was a big sign, a picture of Mother Teresa and Mother, you know, Mother's words saying something like, um, in, in each person we serve Jesus in his distressing disguise. We serve our Lord or whatever her language was. And we serve not to heal and not to save, but we serve out of love. And you could feel it. I mean, people would come in there and they would come often to die, although sometimes to get well. And they'd be held and fed and cared for. But that wasn't the medicine. The medicine was the love, was the beauty, was the joy in this place. And yes, there is birth. And yes, there is death. And it's natural. Do you think it's not going to happen? I mean, it's part of life. But it was met with this joyful and amazingly beautiful heart. Rabbi Nachman, if you never want to see the face of hell when you come home from work at night, dance with your kitchen towel. If you're worried about waking up your family, take off your shoes. (laughs) It's a really radical thing to allow ourselves to be happy. And in the teachings of compassion and loving kindness, which we'll go back to over these next weeks at some point, One of the phrases one directs toward oneself is, may I be happy. Just as you bless others, may you be happy and may you and you deeply happy, truly happy. People say, wait a second, is it okay to say, may I be happy? It is a radical and extraordinary thing to say, yes, this is our birthright as well. Joy, the great joy of a Buddha, of an awakened one, compassion with it, of course. Aliveness of energy, seeing of truth, mindfulness. And then these qualities are stabilized by the last three factors of enlightenment. Concentration, which is really a wholeness. A, a, the end, instead of being scattered, it is a steadiness of heart. Sometimes it's talked about as an elephant being picked, pricked by a pin or a a sequoia tree tugged on by a person with a rope. It's when we find our ground, our centeredness, our steadiness. Now you see how difficult it is. You come to meditate even for half an hour or, you know, 40 minutes and you try and quiet the mind. And again, like as Annie Lamott says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone, right? But we also know the moments of steadiness, of being present, whether as a, a cook or making pottery or a computer programmer or a business person or a lover or when we read a book and get completely engaged and fully present for it. There is a kind of steadiness and stillness and coming back to be with things in a whole way as they are. Gandhi talked about this as blessed monotony. Instead of looking for something new all the time, the ability to settle and take the step that we take and drink the tea that's in our hands and see the person next to us and bring our whole and complete attention. And as we do, things settle and our life becomes more enlightened and awake and alive by this wholeness. To learn to relax and steady And I watched people doing walking meditation on the retreat. You know, there was all that rain and then the sunny day came out and people were out walking in the retreat center 
been sitting for a whole week and doing their walking meditation. And this one person was kind of walking by quite mindfully and looked like a clipper ship in this beautiful, you know, spring breeze or autumn breeze or whatever. Just the sense of graciousness with every step and presentness and a little bit of a smile. And I thought, oh, what a beautiful picture of being present and collected and concentrated. Rilke, poet, writes about the swan. This clumsy living that moves lumbering as if in ropes through what is not done and not enough reminds us of the awkward way the swan walks. And to die, which is a letting go of the ground we stand on and cling to every day, the moment-to-moment death, is like the swan when he or she nervously lets herself down into the water, which receives her gaily and which flows joyfully under and after her, wave after wave, while the swan, unmoving and marvelously calm, is pleased to be carried, each minute more fully grown, more like a queen composed farther and farther on. And so there's this awkward lumbering way of being scattered and so forth. And then we know in ourselves, what is it like when we're fully and wholly present, when we give ourselves that completely and steady and relaxed? There's a kind of dignity and surrender. And this is one of the qualities of our enlightened heart. And with it, there is calm. The stillness of the wise My teacher, Ajahn Chah, who put it this way, he said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. In the Tao, it's called easy come, easy go. It is. Spring comes and the grass grows of itself. Not to make a project of life or a struggle against life. And this doesn't mean not caring or not standing up for justice, not... um, acting out of compassion for the very things in this world that need it. But instead of doing it in a reactive and tight and frightened way, to act from a gracious and calm and still heart. It's what Gandhi did when he took every week a day in silence to say, I want to sit and get so still that the acts that I do come from the place of the deepest wisdom and love and not a reaction to anyone. There is, in bullfighting, a place in the ring where the bull feels safe. If he can reach this place, he stops running and can gather himself. He's no longer afraid. From the point of view of the matador, he becomes dangerous. It's the job of the matador to be sure that the bull does not have time to occupy his place of wholeness. This safe place is called a carencia. For human beings... The currency is the place in our inner world where a person finds their currency in full view of the matador. They are calm and steady and wise. They have gathered their strength around them. The inner silence is more secure than any hiding place. And I remember when I was in Thailand um, in the 1970s, um, there was a student revolution. There was a pretty terrible military dictatorship, um, as happens regularly all over the world, as we know, so many places. And the students and the young people, as activists, um, at one point began to rebel against some of the injustices of it. And there was a really bloody kind of scene in the main capital and days of fighting and struggling. And... uh, One morning, you know, the army on one side and students with their barricades and many people who were shot and 
Um, they didn't know how to de-escalate it. One morning, one of the meditation masters of a temple outside of Bangkok got all 150 of his monks and nuns to put on their formal robes as they would going out from the monastery and walked into Bangkok and walked right down the middle of the firing line between the soldiers and the students and just stood there in meditation for a long time and then walked away and things got somewhat peaceful by that and then they started heating up again and they went to a temple nearby and they heard it heating up and they came out and they walked back again through the middle of it. Yes, risking being shot at, but more than that, carrying the energy of eternal stillness, of a presence that everyone could feel, the wisdom, the wise heart of the Buddha. And this calm, this quieting the mind, opening the heart, leads to the last of these factors of enlightenment of your own awakened heart and mind, which is called equanimity. I would call it the perfect, spacious, and gracious balance of mind and heart. It's the, you know, the phrase from Swami Satchitananda, Hindu guru, where he says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. It's this ability to be with the changes of the world, which will continue to change, and find a peace in the midst of them. It's not a withdrawal or an indifference to the world but rather this spacious presence that rests in the middle. Either a big perspective, like this alchemical teaching of Hermes Trismegistus, perceive you are not yet born, not yet conceived, that you are in the womb, that you are young, that you are old, that you have died, that you are in the world beyond the grave. Grasp in your mind all this at once, all times and places, and then you can begin to see with the eye of the divine. Equanimity has this vast perspective that's not only great time, but in a certain way is timeless. The Buddha lived in nirvana, For 45 years after his enlightenment, he ate, he walked, he slept, he talked with people, he did everything that you do and did so in a place of freedom and perfect balance or ease, which is this equanimity. When you realize the fact that everything changes, says Zen Master Suzuki, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. There is a repose and an intimacy and a graciousness. There's a trust with it as well. This beautiful quality of trust, as Rilke says, being alive means not counting or numbering, but ripening like a tree which doesn't force its sap and stands confidently in the storms of winter, not afraid that summer may not come. It does come. It always comes. And this deep trust, like planting the seeds in the gardens of the Cambodian refugees, there comes a sense of trusting the dance of life itself, that we're not in charge with our own ideas and the small sense of self. We can do what's right. We can care for those who need it. We can stand up for what needs to be stood up for. But we can do so with a still and compassionate and balanced heart. And the world needs us so much. The world is in so much fear and terror. If we were to take the war on terror, which is kind of a funny phrase, it's like war on war. Okay, that will, that will help really a lot, right? But if we were to take it for a moment, you know, the thing that is the problem is the terror itself. And what would it mean to step out of the body of fear and blame and all the things that come out of that and come to this gracious heart that's your own best and most beautiful true nature, your own Buddha nature. 
And what effect does it have when we live in that way on those around us? We can make our minds so like still water, says Yeats, that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. Mindfulness, the energy of aliveness, seeing the truth, joy even in the midst of this difficult human life, happiness, a steady concentration, a calm and peaceful heart, and the great sky of equanimity. These are the invitations of the Buddha to remember these as your own best and most beautiful qualities. You all know them. This is not distant from us. It is part of who we are. And it gets to be more and more so as we practice and remember and live them. It's like this wonderful story of a Chinese teapot. You know, in certain Chinese families, the teapots are handed down for generation upon generation. And this one family had a teapot that was 150 years old. You didn't even need to put tea in the pot. You just put water in and it made tea of itself. (laughs) And that's really what happens with us as this grows. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.